when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Experience the wonder of summer. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. Go to volvocars.com slash us. This podcast contains explicit language. No, no Republican. I can't hear Adriana. Should I yeah, be able to? I can. Now I can. Yes. I just wanted to make, <laughs> so guys, I just, just wanted you to know. Arthur, she was really making fun of your haircut. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> Did it myself. So that happened. Bernie Sanders is the hottest ticket in the 2016 race, drawing crowds that dwarf everyone else. Will his new criminal justice platform satisfy Black Lives Matter activists who are protesting not only Sanders, but Hillary Clinton and Jeb Bush? Then we'll talk to dangerous ne'er-do-wells Ryan Riley and Wesley Lowry about their nefarious activities in Ferguson, Missouri. We'll also talk to famous Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig, who wants to run for president even though he doesn't actually want to be president. Don't worry, we'll explain. And don't forget, Donald Trump is running for president, which is still hilarious and terrible and awesome. I'm Zach Carter, joined by Huffington Post reporters Arthur Delaney, Julia Craven, and Ryan Riley. And here's what happened first. All right, so I think uh, Bernie Sanders has probably had the craziest week of any 73-year-old I know. Um, he's He's got some great poll numbers from New Hampshire, uh, showing him with a lead over Hillary Clinton. He's been drawing huge crowds in uh, on the West Coast, uh, in Portland and Seattle. Uh, but I think the, the event that really jumped out, certainly to people in the progressive movement, I think to uh, the country more broadly, was a protest of one of, of, of a rally that uh, he was scheduled to speak at in Seattle. And joining me now to talk about it, we have HuffPost's own Julia Craven. Hi. And <laughs> Gerald Hankerson, the uh, NAACP president from Seattle, King County, uh, who was actually present at the rally and, and spoke at the rally. Uh, thanks for joining us, Gerald. Thank you for having me. So, Gerald, since you were there, I just kind of want to get your um, your your uh, just ask you to recount um, what what the event was like and and what happened and what you thought was significant about it. Yeah, well, obviously, we were there for a uh, Social Security, Medicaid, and Medicare rally uh, celebrating uh, its birthday after sixty years of a program that a lot of our people, particularly African American people, solely depend on as their only source of income. And uh, a lot of coalition folks was there that put it together. And, of course, uh, Bernie Sanders uh, was invited to participate as well. And uh, for the first part of the program, it went uh, perfectly well as far as uh, talking about the issues for which we were there. And I did speak as the first speaker uh, talking about the very issue, how Social Security impact our community and why we need to expand it. And at the end of the program, uh, when uh, uh, Bernie Sanders took the stage, uh, two young women uh, from the Black Lives Matter movement interrupted the program and took over the stage and uh, took over that moment and seized their space. And uh, uh, there was a lot of, lot of different uh, uh, disruption. Uh, people were going crazy because they were there to be Bernie. Uh, but overall, after the end of the day, the one significant thing that I learned about the incident that took place is the true nature of some of the conversations in the state, uh, some of the statements that was being yelled by uh, the folks that was there to hear Bernie uh, that I found to be uh, troubling. Uh, it really, for me, exposed the true nature and the few, uh, true feelings that uh, when it comes to progressive and liberals, they still uh, you know, said some of the most horrible things, and those are the significant things that got exposed to me. The Bernie followers, notwithstanding the fact that obviously uh, he identifies with a lot of our issues, but when it comes to race, uh, he clearly was failed, and uh, they exposed that. And not only did they expose that uh, for Bernie Sanders, but it did reveal the true uh, feelings that folks in Seattle, how they truly feel when it comes to race. And that was the most difficult part for me, but ultimately, ultimately uh, the best lesson I learned from that day. So I've, I, to me, I thought this really exposed uh, a, a sort of longstanding rift in the progressive movement that a lot of progressives, certainly white progressives, don't usually like to talk about, um, which is when you... 
when you look at the progressive movement and, and say like a lot of the events that I go to or the the jobs I've had, for instance, um, uh, you know, th- there was a protest at Netroots earlier this year. And, and I remember one of the protesters talked to um, uh, Jamil Smith from uh, the New Republic afterwards and said, you know, when I go to Netroots, I see a lot of white progressives. I don't see them talking about things I care about. Um, and I remember thinking, yeah, when I go to Netroots, it is kind of like that. But when you see people yelling, uh, you know, arrest her and throwing water bottles at the stage, um, I think it does show how how you know there there is there's uh, just because people want to be on on Team Justice doesn't mean mean they are. Julia, uh, there there has been this longstanding split. Uh, not only that, you know, sometimes white progressives are kind of racist, but uh, <laughs> but, but there's also the, in the way that people talk about, uh, like, approach social justice issues. So Gerald's just talking about uh, economic policies that tend to disproportionately help people of color because people of color tend to disproportionately be economically screwed over. The Black Lives Matter movement has a lot of activists who don't like that frame. They prefer to talk directly about, about race and particularly about criminal justice and violence. Do you think that that... Um, that frame on on sort of racial theory and and racial progress has has is gaining more ground right now is is more dominant in in the activist culture. I think it is. I think that we have a tendency to focus on like criminal justice reform, mass incarceration, et cetera, et cetera. When honestly, one of the things that we really do need to think about are these middle class economic policies because they don't affect different racial groups the same way. So that's kind of why I like the targeting, for lack of a better word, of like the Democratic candidates, because they get their votes, specifically the black vote, based on like their middle class economic policies. But it's like these policies have never really helped black people get out of poverty or attain wealth. One of the protesters uh, named Marissa Janae Johnson, who's on the stage, we invited her to be part of the show. We didn't hear from her. I'm sure she's pretty busy right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, I, you know, one of the things that's interesting, though, I looked at some of the polling on on the stuff um, from from Gallup. They do a poll which just shows, uh, it's just, you can just, it's open-ended. So they ask you, what's what's the most important you know, issue facing the country today? And they, they break it out by race. Um, and yeah, Economic stuff uh, for black voters tends to tends to take the the, the cake. It's it's uh, the two number one things that are tied are unemployment and jobs, which is tied with uh, race relations at thirteen percent. But then number two is economy in general, and like number three or four is poverty, and then healthcare. It all seem like like economic yeah. issues. Um, Gerald Hankerson, do you think there are ways that uh, white progressives who who want to support who, who want to be part of the uh, the racial justice movement can learn to talk about economic policies and and not piss people off? Yeah, uh, first of all, I think the, uh, the mis- misconception is the reality that, uh, particularly folks in our community, uh, people's race, uh, economic uh, inequality is not the same as racial inequality. Uh, obviously, some of it overlaps, but most importantly for people of our community, uh, racial inequality is more important because addressing race addresses all other elements uh, when it comes to whatever economic policy. Remember, this conversation for uh, several hundred years ago, uh, the slave trade was of economic policy not as far as a race policy. We actually feel like this is the same conversation happening again today. When we're talking about black issues, we can't wrap it around as just talking about economic policies and addressing those as a solving the back problem. That's not the case. And just picking up one particular institution like criminal justice reform and other reforms, uh, race impi- impacts a lot of different institutions, that is institutional race, uh, racism, not just criminal justice reform. So when progressives feel like they're addressing our policy, when they talk about it from an economic standpoint, point. It misses the point uh, because race, it matters. Black lives matter first, and then understanding that concept will then allow you to address racial inequality in all institutions, not just one or two that's most impacting us. How did you feel about, uh, what did you think about the way uh, Bernie Sanders uh, himself responded to the protest? Well, uh, the fact that he had the opportunity that he could have addressed this and talk about it in a way to where he could, uh, you know, obviously our community feels strongly about Bernie Sanders because some of them actually feel that he's the best candidate. But his inability to talk about race in this day and in this era uh, is problematic. Uh, I don't think that people actually is upset about Bernie's policy when it comes to economic uh, inequality, but when it comes to race, his failure to do so, uh, this is where he struggled. And he has a great opportunity right now to address it in a way to uh, bring 
bring in the youth, the young, uh, the youth, uh, the folks that's in this new era, this new activism. Understanding the Black Lives Matter movement also requires to understand the civil rights movement. The inability to understand those two uh, can't explain why people just don't understand what's going on here. But most importantly, I'm not, uh, I don't condone nor condemn uh, how those activists, their tactics, because this has been a cornerstone of activism as long as I've been around. Uh, getting attention, agitation, all those stuff, because people are still dying in the street, and there seems to be no one is willing to talk about it in a, a way to where it's really going to get to the heart of what's impacting our communities. They like to sugarcoat it, like the progressives do, and pretend like it's not there, but right below the surface, uh, their inability to talk about race in a real way is where the problem's at. I call it passive aggressiveness, if you ask me. So, Julia, to what extent do you think this is a, a, a communication problem? Were there people who are just talking past each other? And what do you, to what extent do you think this is a, like a fundamental difference within the progressive movement about how things are and how they ought to be? I don't really think it's that big of a communication problem. I think that it just does boil down to fundamental differences because it's kind of like a lot of white progressives, they think that because they're not individually racist that therefore, you know, it's not... How do I say this? They think that because they're not individually racist, that they're not benefiting from certain systems mm-hmm. that perpetuate racism. So, yeah, I think it just really boils down to that, honestly. And what did you think of uh, – so Bernie Sanders did release a, uh, a pretty lengthy mm-hmm. uh, uh, criminal justice reform set of proposals. Um, what did you make of those, those proposals? This was after the, the protest, of course. He has some strong language in there, <laughs> mm-hmm. but um, again, it's just it's it's really difficult for me to like trust stuff like that, um, just because a lot of candidates, including Barack Obama, you know, they talk one way and then they walk another. So, uh, Gerald Hankerson, do, do you? I mean, that that distrust of politicians in general. Uh, Marissa Jane Johnson's not here, but when she gave an interview to uh, another podcast, she said, you know, I I don't. I don't think the electoral process works at all. I mean, it seemed like like her her perspective, it, it wasn't just like Bernie Sanders talks about this stuff poorly or something. It was I don't think the like I don't think electoral politics are a good idea. Um, she I, I don't think she would have been happy with the uh, the you know the criminal justice reform proposals uh, that that Bernie put out. I mean, she's actually calling for the abolition of police forces, um, which is not I mean she's not going to get that from any candidate that's running for president. I don't think, um, but. It, Gerald Hangerson, are there are there a set of policies that that uh, you see is is you know, predominantly like overwhelmingly important on on criminal justice reform that uh, the candidates need to be talking about? Well, obviously, uh, you know, uh, true, a- absolutely. One of the biggest ones right now is the police accountability. One of the biggest things that's going on in our country right now, where uh, a lot of our young men and women is being killed around the country at the hands of police. And as we continue to have this debate, there is continuing to happen. Uh, no one is coming up with a strategy or a plan uh, to address this uh, crisis, as we, uh, as I call it. Uh, you know, so that's one of the key areas there. And I sort of agree with the fact of, uh, uh, you know, the fact, you know, Bernie Sanders want to talk about criminal justice reform. But if it took this kind of efforts and actions and direct actions just to get him to be able to talk about it, imagine the distrust that if he were to win the election for the president, that we don't trust the fact he's going to do anything about it. So he really got to come across in a strong and convincing way that not only am I willing to talk about it, I promise you I'm going to do something about it if I do win the presidency, which is exactly what the fact that these the Black Lives Matter movements are portrayed. Uh, you know, talking about it is key, but part of us feel like that his inability to talk about it, but, you know, you know when you got a huge white crowd, you don't see a whole lot of uh, people of color in his uh, big, huge crowds he's been gathering, which mm. is exactly the point, and which is why some people feel like the Electoral College really doesn't work because the people that are going to be dominating at the polls is the people that outnumber us when it comes to white progressives. So uh, I totally agree that the progressives automatically feel like they're entitled to our support because they've been a part of the things we've been doing for so long. But now that we're here, it feels like they've actually forgot about us to talk about race on his face. And that has created the problem between the separation between our community as well as our politics. So what about the other candidates? Because uh, you know, this this protest was pretty intense. Uh, you know, it was it was an aggressive. It was it was beyond confrontational. I mean, at times I thought the the speakers were pretty, pretty hostile to the audience and the audience was was hostile right back. Um, but Hillary Clinton, by contrast, locks out 
Black Lives Matter protesters from her <laughs> from her event and gets a, a quiet, private, you know, off the record meeting um, with, uh, with with protesters. Um, Jeb Bush was confronted this week as well, uh, and Jeb Bush he, he got a chant and someone was escorted from the from the yeah. meeting, and then uh, and then I think someone got to ask some questions at the end. And, you know, I don't think Jeb Bush had a good time at that event, um, but but uh, was is the level of attention uh, paid to Bernie? Uh, appropriate relative to the other candidates, you think, uh, Julia? Um, well, one, I think Bernie's easier to get to. Mm. Um, it's tough to get to um, Clinton because she has Secret Service, so <laughs> it's really hard to get to her. Um, and then another thing that I think about her is um, I think that that the fact that she is harder to get to is what's playing a role in this because black people have not forgotten about the crime bill. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like that's still very much an issue. And she's, she's walked back on that. She's just like, Oh, well, you know, I realized that promoting the crime bill was a big mistake, but it's just kind of like, she hasn't offered any like policy suggestions as to what she's going to do to reverse that. So, I, I think that she is a she's a target because like she pretty much or her husband rather pushed mass incarceration. So and and she defended tough on on crime policies as late as the two thousand eight election, right? Um, but you know her approval rating among uh, among black voters is still it's it's like eighty percent. I think Bernie Sanders is is twenty three percent. His his disapproval rating is only ten percent. Hers is twelve. Um, but like ninety two percent of black voters know who Hillary Clinton is. Only about a third of right. them know who Bernie Sanders is. Uh, Gerald Hankerson, do you think there's a disconnect between the way? Um, activist voters think about Hillary Clinton and the way the public at large thinks about her? I definitely agree with that. Obviously, you know, as you just heard, that Hillary Clinton, when she and her and her husband was in the White House, uh, they were responsible for building the most prisons that were, you know, led to this mass incarceration, uh, particularly when it comes to people of color that filled up our prisons. So she definitely has some work to do on convincing of that. And as Bernie Sanders have said, that he won't uh, come out talking about it in a way because he feels that the candidate Clinton uh, obviously is a panderer. So she'll say whatever she needs to say to a communities of color to particularly get their vote. So he's feeling pretty stubborn about that. But overall, uh, folks are looking for Bernie Sanders to give them a reason to why they should leave uh, one campaign to join the rest. He hit on every point that everything in our communities feel strongly about, particularly when it comes to economic policies, getting jobs, and uh, the unemployment rate when it comes to our community, criminal justice reform, all those areas. But when specifically talking about race, there's no candidate talking about that, which is the reason why the Black Lives Matter movement, the young activists, have uh, generated this kind of bubbled up and talk about it in a way to not only see the need to talk about it, but also for all the supporters of the Sanders and the Clinton campaign to understand that uh, Black Lives Matter until we talk about it. All the candidates are going to be filling this heat up until Election Day. All right. Well, Gerald Hankerson, thanks so much for joining us. And Julia, you'll be back later in the show. For now, uh, we'll see you guys in just a minute. This podcast is sponsored by Volvo. It's time to experience the wonder of summer. Leave early, get close, wander more, stargaze, do it all. Have a month's payment on Volvo and spend your summer doing the things that matter to you. Plus, get up to five years full coverage, including wear and tear. The wonder of summer event from Volvo. Go to volvocars.com slash us or test drive a Volvo at your local dealer. And we're back. So we are joined now by Harvard professor Lawrence Lessig, who is, I think, most famous for a lot of work on copyright and free speech. But he's been working on a lot of political justice issues, political corruption issues lately. Professor Lessig, you are interested in uh, a run for president. Is, Is that right? Yeah, that's right. And because I'm now thinking of political things, I'm told I have to be referred to as Larry now. So it's not Professor Lessig anymore. It's not Lawrence. <laughs> oh, is your, your brand is Larry. <laughs> no, now it's got to be Larry, right? <laughs> well, the Bernie, Larry, Hillary show. Feel the Larry. Okay. Uh, so, so, so you're running for president, but, but let me get this straight. You don't actually want to be president? No, I want to be a president who can make it possible for the next great president to actually be able to do something. And what I figured is the only way to do that is to be, you know, kind of like Frodo Baggins, like somebody who grabs the ring 
to throw it into the uh, in the mountain and make it so that the power no longer corrupts. What is the ring? The ring is this co- incredibly corrupted system that we've evolved in our government for representing the people. You know, this system where this tiny, tiny fraction of the 1% fund the campaigns makes it impossible for us to address any important issue sensibly. So, you know, when you think about all the issues the Democratic candidates are talking about that they're going to be dealing with, um, all these great ideas, bold ideas from climate change to student debt, you know, what we know is that none of those can be solved given this corrupt system until we find a way to fix that corrupt system. So that's the idea. Elizabeth Warren tells me the system is rigged. I agree with her. The system is rigged. So we have to unrig the rigged systems first. Uh, Larry Lessig, the sense I have is that you have a lot of policy agreement with uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who is uh, you know a major candidate at this point, but you've got a much stronger emphasis on what you're talking about, corruption and, and campaign finance reform. Is, is that a way people could understand how you fit into this very crowded race right now? Yeah, no, I don't think it's a difference in degree. I think it's a difference in kind. Um, certainly, Bernie has checked off increasingly checks off the right boxes when it comes to this corruption issue. Um, And I admire him. I've admired him for as long as I've known anything about politics. He's extraordinary. Um, um, But the problem is, you know, he's listing this corruption stuff as one of seven different issues, one of eight issues, right? Um, You know, when we launched our campaign, it was literally issue number eight. The day we launched, it moved to issue number two. So that's progress. But but still, it's like one of eight. Um, This is the most powerful interest in Washington that we have to take on to win this issue. So if you come to Washington with, you know, one of eight uh, issues uh, defining your mandate to take on this most powerful force uh, against reform, you can't do it. So what I said to him, and uh, um, his campaign apparently leaked this to Politico, what I said to him in the early stages of his campaign was, you've got to convince us that you can fix this first. And if you can convince us you can fix it first, then everything else you say is credible. But if it's, you can't show us you're going to fix it first, then what you're talking about when you talk about all these you know, bold ideas is just not credible. Um, so well, difference- well, let me let me let me jump in there, uh, uh, Larry. I keep wanting to call you professor uh, because you, you said before the campaign finance system, right? Larry, Larry, Larry. So the uh, the the ring is the is the corrupt campaign finance system. What is Mount Doom uh, for you? What what is the thing that you throw the campaign finance system into? it uh, into um, uh, reform. And so when it's melted in the volcano, what it turns into is a system where we have exactly what we had at the time the framers thought they gave us a representative democracy, a system where every citizen is equal. Now, of course, they were pretty oblivious to this, the, uh, to the, um, to the citizens who should be equal. Like, they didn't think much about blacks being citizens. They didn't think women should be equal. So I'm not, you know, praising their insights about equality on all dimensions. But the one thing they got was that if you were a citizen, you were supposed to have equal status in the republic. And by corrupting that, what we've done is create a system where a tiny, tiny fraction have extraordinary power in our democracy. But what is the, what is the mechanism for changing that? So if we change that, by, for example, um, changing the way campaigns are funded. Imagine instead of, you know, 400 families giving half the amount of money that's been uh, raised in this campaign cycle so far, um, every voter had a 50 or $100 voucher, which they gave, which they could use to give to candidates to fund their campaigns. All of a sudden, candidates would be focused on the millions to fund their campaigns, not on the, you know, thousands or tens of thousands to fund their campaigns. This- and that would... So you, you would there would be no Donald Trump because he wouldn't be able to buy his way into the campaign. No, he would go back to entertainment, so he would fit the category of the hospital. That's where we like him. All right. I know. But to do this you have to you have to repeal Citizens United, right? That decision's gotta be no, overturned. You don't you no, you don't need to change Citizens United in order to create a system of um, citizen-funded elections. A voucher proposal, the Supreme Court's indicated a million times, would be completely constitutional. What you need to change in Citizens United is the super PAC. And my own view is 
the Supreme Court is primed to do that, and I think it would do that. And, and that's why there, if the Supreme Court doesn't, that's why there is a role to think about constitutional change in the future. But even without the super PAC, what we've got to do is create a system where it's not this tiny fraction of the 1% or the dominant funders in these camps. All right. Well, Larry Lessig, thank you for joining us. We wish you luck on your journey. Thank you. <laughs> Don't get <laughs> killed by a dragon or whatever. <laughs> I, I'm trying hard. I've got my guards. And we're back. I'm Arthur Delaney, joined in studio by Ryan Riley, Huffington Post reporter. And over the phone, we've got Wesley Lowry from the Washington Post. Uh, And on August 13th, 2014, Ryan Riley and Wesley Lowry were both arrested for being in a McDonald's, basically, in uh, Ferguson. So to mark this anniversary, I guess the, uh, the Ferguson... The St. Louis County Police Department has decided to, at the last minute of uh, st- within a year-long statute of limitations, they've decided to press charges. And uh, people have gone from outraged to amused that this is happening. And I thought we'd mark the occasion by going over a, uh, an investigative report that accompanies the uh, the charging documents, which I'm not sure we've even seen yet in Ryan Riley's case. Yeah, I, I've been fighting for this document for a very long time, so it's good to finally see it. I mean, that's one uh, that's one positive development out of this, and I think that you know, <laughs> outraged to amused is a good uh, is a good range of what uh, I think Wesley and I have been uh, feeling um, looking at this too, um, and also just sort of you know um, disappointed that it's such a, it's a distraction. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. ...from, I think, the reporting that we um, would want to be doing there. And both of you, uh, Wesley Lowry, you guys are talking about this so publicly because you're, you're, it's, you're completely fighting back against it. Well, of course. I mean, I think we, we've been transparent from the very beginning about what happened in that restaurant and what happened uh, in the moments after that restaurant. Uh, we've been very clear um, and extremely consistent for people who've talked very frequently, extremely consistent in our stories about what happened. Um, there's some videotape of it. And so, yeah, I mean, we, we've, been, we've been out here discussing this in part because it's so ridiculous um, and, and also in part because, you know, for so long they wouldn't give us any any police report. They wouldn't give us any information. Now, this poli- they didn't even have a police report for this until April. And, and that's referenced in, in this uh, investigative report, which is put together apparently even later than April. And, and bear in mind, that is more than half a year after this actually happened last August. This happened in the wake of the, the police killing of Michael Brown by, by Officer Darren Wilson. And, and this was the beginning of a, a massive period of arrest that has really been, uh, you know, become this protest movement known as Black Lives Matter. Uh, and the investigative report that they put together takes pains to, to provide this context. Uh, and I think they go above and beyond. There's I'll, I'll, and, and since Wesley Lowry has not yet obtained uh, a copy of this, I'll, I'll read it to you. Um, They're talking about a level of violence that's interfering with their abilities to to answer calls. And it says, Incident Command was also aware of the presence of the new Black Panther Party, 
since August 10th, 2014, Incident Command was additionally aware that anarchists and communists from such groups as the Revolutionary Communist Party were either present or had indicated their intention to come to Ferguson with the stated intention in participating in the civil unrest. I mean, this sounds like an FBI file from the 1960s. I mean, this is what the, <laughs> I mean, this I, is what this sounds like. I think like. it sounds like Wesley Lowry's Twitter trolls. <laughs> <laughs> what, what do you make of that, Wesley Lowry? Well, exactly. I mean, I mean, what we know about both the Revolutionary Communist Party and the New Black Panther Party is that they're both groups of like 15 people um, who sometimes show up places and wave signs and yell at cops. Um, and I think the Revolutionary Communists put out their own like newspaper too. I mean, these are this isn't like ISIS had declared it was showing up. Um, <laughs> you know, th- 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 these are a bunch of like unemployed people. You know, who are trying to get media to write about them. And here's the kicker on that, right? So a couple days after this incident, guess who uh, the uh, police in charge at the time were working with to keep the march going in a in you know in a peaceful manner? The New Black Panther Party. Really? Now the New Black Panther Party, uh, in addition to however many members it has, it's a major right-wing meme, or at least it was for a while there. Yeah, I and, can't, I can't seem to escape them. I've been covering them since... Um, Megan Kelly on Fox News was constantly showing, this is video of the new Black Panther Party intimidating voters, and it was like a guy standing at a, <laughs> at a, at a polling station. Right. Anyway, um, they, they, the, the report also takes pains to say the manager... It was instructed to close the business and and asked for help uh, doing so, and that and that may be dubious. Uh, what do you think, Wesley Lowry? I mean, it seems highly unlikely what we know of the manager. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, what, what seems more likely about the, uh, in terms of the way the police were behaving during that period of time is they likely came in and said, listen, we're going to close your restaurant down. And the manager, Keith, who at this point, you know, pretty well personally, probably said, no, okay, whatever, guys. Um, you know, what, what we do know also is that McDonald's has been pretty clear uh, at the corporate level from the very beginning that they uh, – did not request any help evacuating this building. Um, they did not request anyone to be taken into custody. And so the idea that they're going to try to legally justify this by saying, um, because again, this is a police force of essentially exercising a martial law, coming into a private establishment and uh, detaining and arresting two paying customers in that private establishment. There, that's one of the reasons that this, those lines about the management requesting it are so important and so vital to their case. Unfortunately, they're, I mean, they're just inaccurate. So you're not you're not guilty of trespassing if the people in charge of the place didn't want you want to you leave. Out. Yeah. He certainly welcomed us back with open arms in the in the days after that. And, you guys uh, went back there and had some fries, right? I was there yesterday. He's still he he, he he's still declining uh, Wes's uh, selfie request, as far as I know. But he shook our hands and he talks to us and he jokes with us. Why would anyone decline a selfie request? <laughs> <laughs> now here's where now and and this this document is really long and horribly written, uh, but part that's repeated. Is, and it's similar for both guys. It says, while attempting to, cl- to help close the business, Officer McCann directed his attention to Mr. Riley, who was near the back corner of the restaurant. He advised Mr. Riley he would have to leave rather than pack his belongings to leave. Mr. Riley simply moved his belongings around in an inefficacious manner. <laughs> Officer McCann then packed Mr. Riley's bag for him in a further effort to assist him in leaving the restaurant when it became apparent that Mr. Riley was not going to leave as directed, Officer McCann placed Mr. Riley under arrest. When Mr. Lowry began to put his bag down near the soda machine and stopped in order to video record, Officer Steinmetz placed Mr. Lowry under arrest for trespassing. Mr. Lowry, uh, h- how does that narrative sound? Was is, is anything left out of there, or is that basically what happened? Well, what we know from the video that has been recorded was that uh, as I as I packed, um, you know, I asked a series of what I think were eminently reasonable questions. I asked one if the officers were afraid from pointing his weapon at me. Um, wait, wait, wait. He was pointing his gun at you? Yeah, he was gesturing with his gun that I needed to hurry up. And, and, and these o- did not do that. These officers are, are dressed in full combat gear. Correct. Yeah, and so, you know, and I've, and I've got a notebook. And so I'm asking, like, you know, maybe, maybe that wouldn't be the most civil way to get me to move more quickly. Because, um, in fact, that might be, in fact, increasing my anxiety about the situation. Um, and may, <laughs> it might be in, impairing my ability to pack up. Um, but that said, after that, I, I attempted to ask the officer, hey, officer, my car is in this lot. Does it matter what door I need to go out? Am I going to be able to drive out of the lot, or should I just walk up the street? You know, we're being evacuated. We're told a riot is breaking out. And so I thought, you know, I should probably reasonably ask, should I just 
run away? Is there, I mean, what, what are you trying to tell me? Should I just leave and, on foot? I'm going to be able to get in my car. Uh, at the time, he told me he didn't have time for questions. Um, and then a few seconds later, decided, well, of course you can get your car. And so he was a little contradictory. Uh, then we got to, as I you know, picked up my things, I packed my bag, and I'm walking towards the door. Um, and I confronted another officer who decided that I couldn't go out the door I'd been instructed to. I needed to turn around and go out another one. So I stopped and said, all right, guys, I'm going to need you to tell me which one to go out of. Um, and as they conferred, my bag started to slip. And what we know from the video is that, you know, I said, hey, officers, can I please just adjust my bag real quick? And at that point, they decided, you know, enough had been enough um, that, they, you know, that politeness was just a step too far. Um, and they were going to take me into custody. So they, they, they think you were basically lollygagging with the bag there. It's, yeah, I mean, I mean, this is all in response to that recording. I think was the issue here, which you know, I, you know, luckily Wes's uh, video uh, went through because I can can't imagine what narrative we would be seeing in this report had that uh, that video not been here. It would it would especially when you're interviewing officers about something they did wrong uh, months and months and months and months later. It's a lot of time to create a narrative. So. Now you you both have said they they slammed you that yes. this, this was a rough arrest. Right. So, I mean, so my initial, I mean, you know, my initial, when they initially took me into custody, they used, you know, force, uh, they, you know, put, uh, they jammed a finger into basically my neck um, and said, stop resisting, stop resisting, stop resisting. And I said, I'm not resisting, I'm not resisting, I'm not resisting. I went, you know, I put my hands behind my back, I did everything. It says they put, he put his thumb in your mandible. Yes. Yeah. Ouch. Yeah. And then, um, you know, the, what's under dispute, according to the officer, is that on the way out the door, um, that he, well, on the way out the door, so he slams my head into the door and then sarcastically apologizes for it. Now, what's interesting about that is, right, like, I, this, was, this was, you know, enough of a story, the fact that they arrested journalists. Um, and I immediately after that, um, you know, when we were waiting out on the street, asked repeatedly for that officer's name after he slammed my head on the door. Um, and he was silent, and, and every single one of the people around Officer McCann. Silent. Officer McCann, who we now learned his name, who, as it turns out, has a, uh, you know, the man that they put in charge of um, <laughs> protecting property on Ferguson, it turns out, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly crashed his police car into private property and destroyed it and then fled the scene without so, recording so that's it. that's a little bit of oppo Officer <laughs> McCann. <laughs> Uh, allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Now, and they, was suspe- well, he was suspended from the same. Now, they say you weren't previously. providing identification, Ryan Riley. What's that about? Right. So, okay. So, here's my thoughts on this. I was out in the street there, and there, I, I'm documenting this incredible, incredible um, <laughs> overreaction and sort of, um, uh, I think, abuse of the people who were um, who were uh, who were living there and were trying to exercise their First Amendment rights. Um, and I think that he very clearly, as actually is clear in the report, he knew I was a reporter. I mean, I was sitting there with a couple of laptops. It doesn't take that much, you know, sense to sort of imagine that I'm a reporter. Um, and so he, after I took photos, he came over and said, you took some photos of it. Let me see some ID. Um, and I said, I asked if he had probable cause that I committed a crime um, because I didn't, you know, that was I did I didn't think I needed to show ID. I didn't need to show ID. Just because I'm a journalist doesn't give me a privilege to take photos over other people. Everyone's allowed to take photos of the police. There was nothing I did wrong. He had no reason to detain me or stop me or ask me for my identification. So I declined to provide it. Um, uh, Wesley Lowry, they slammed you into a soda machine. You've said, can you describe that a little bit? <laughs> well, of course. And so, like I said, he's picking up where we left off. I asked. I said, you know, can I please adjust my bag? They said, okay, let's take him. Uh, two officers came at me, grabbed me with both hands, and kind of throwing me up against the soda machine. My phone at that point drops out of my hand. Uh, some coke starts splashing on my on my shoulder. Um, and you know, at that point, they also tell me, you know, stop resisting. And I said, I'm not resisting. My hands are on my back. My hands are on my back. And they kept instructing me that I was resisting arrest. Um, it, it wasn't wasn't completely pleasant. It wasn't as violent as as or seemingly as deliberate as Ryan's kind of assault a few minutes later, um, but it was certainly unnecessarily aggressive. It was not that I was going to pull away or try to run from them. Um, you know, the moment they decided they were going to arrest me, I turned around and put my hands behind my back. But they're, they're rough with two guys who they know to be, or in all likelihood knew, were journalists. Uh, well, they certainly knew I was a journalist. I mean, I, I was wearing identification and had told them that. And so, in and in the documents, he said the officer who arrested me said that he believed I was a journalist. So, th- so in, this this is a distorted picture on the one hand because th- you know they surely they realize there will be some scrutiny of this. You can just imagine. I don't what think... goes down for people who are not journalists, right? And I, but I, here's what I think: I think the culture that of the department that they're in, um, maybe they didn't actually believe that. 
um, maybe they didn't believe that there was going to be any, and I mean, probably rightfully, rightfully so. Because the, the, the subsequent Justice Department investigation revealed their their habits of abusing people well, that, constantly. Well, that was the Ferguson Police Department, but I think just the culture of law enforcement in the area in general right. is, um, is is very problematic. Now, um, bear with me. We're, uh, one last or two two last things. It, Mr. Riley, in a Twitter posting to his account, indicated he had indeed spoken with the officers and been given the opportunity to identify himself. And it quotes this tweet, SWAT just invaded McDonald's where I'm working. Um, A copy of this tweet was seized as evidence by Detective Menzenworth. It was marked, packaged, and remanded to Detective Wolf to be conveyed to the evidence locker of the 7th Precinct. It's just just incredibly bizarre. Yeah. So there's like, your, your tweets have been physically taken. Yeah. Um, Forfeited, yeah. And then the report concludes, it details all the people they arrested from the new Black Panthers. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, so so that's it, guys. I I really hope that, uh, you know, you you two have been accused of trespassing, and and I hope you can beat the charges. And Ryan Riley, I hope you get your tweets back. I hope so, too. All those seized tweets will hopefully be returned. Uh, Wesley Lowry, thank you so much for joining us and, and, uh, and, and talking about this fateful day one year ago. And we're back. Uh, we are joined once again by Arthur Delaney and Julia Craven. Guys, thanks for being here. Yes. You're welcome. So we're going to talk about probably my favorite thing to talk about now uh, over the last three months or so. It's Donald Trump. Yeah. Uh, Donald Trump has had an amazing week, an absolutely amazing week. Um, Probably his best week yet. And despite being more awful than he has been to date, which is an impressive feat for a guy who launched his campaign by calling immigrants from Mexico rapists. And criminals. He got in a fight with Fox News. He was wrong, and Fox was right, and Donald Trump won. Fox News buckled. I cannot believe that we have to say this on this podcast. Fox News was totally in the right. They had done good journalism. They did nothing wrong. (laughs) and, And what we're referring to is they asked hard questions of Trump at the Republican debate. Uh... Fox anchor Megyn Kelly said, why are you such a jerk to women all the time? And Trump proceeded to whine and threaten Fox News until Roger Ailes called him up and they apparently struck a struck a truce. And Megyn Kelly went on TV after that and said, I'm moving on. And, and, then Tr- he, and Trump's and then what did he do? He also said that like, oh, well, you know, she must have been on her period. And I'm just like, I feel some type of way because I don't like defending like certain people. And Megyn Kelly is one of them. Right. <laughs> and I'm just like, oh, so great. Like Megyn Kelly actually didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. I mean, Megyn Kelly's interesting because she's Trump has been so terrible to her that it's turned her into this this sort of innocent, uh, you know, portrait of excellence, of excellence in journalism. Um, and it makes people forget, I think, some some of her, her journalistic past, which includes talking, I think, way overhyping these stories a few years ago about, like, the new Black Panthers and how they're going to intimidate you at the polls. And uh, Jesus was white, and which <laughs> geographically just doesn't make any sense, but whatever. <laughs> I saw a picture of Jesus, and he was white, though. Yeah, I did too, but that doesn't mean it was right, accurate. <laughs> well, she also did that great thing. Uh, in addition to Jesus being white, uh, imaginary people are white. Uh, for 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 you parents here, you got to take the kids out of the room here. We're gonna we're gonna give it away. Santa Claus, not real. Uh, and Megyn Kelly had that thing right. right it was like a year ago. Yeah, she said that Santa's white, so deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> right, and it's just like Santa Claus is an imaginary character, so why can't he be black? <laughs> What's like, wrong? What? <laughs> so, so Donald Trump made her look totally reasonable and wonderful. She actually you know, she stood up for herself as a woman a lot of times in her career, including against Eric Erickson, awful, awful, awful sexist, who yeah. also uh, Donald Trump is making him look incredibly reasonable too. And in fact, when Fox News and Megyn Kelly said, never mind, we don't want to fight with Trump anymore, Eric Erickson looked even more reasonable still. <laughs> and this is Eric Erickson who, when Wendy Davis, uh, state senator from Texas, was running for governor, um, ran a terrible campaign, uh, but when she was running for governor, Eric Erickson's just standard way of referring to her was abortion Barbie. He called Michelle Obama a Fuck. Marxist harpy. Fuck. 
<laughs> so anyway, that's so so. But this, those are the nice guys in this one, and the, the, the they're the good guys in this fight. The bad guy in this fight is a billionaire real estate mogul from New York who is currently destroying all of the other Republican candidates in the polls for the Republican nomination, named Donald Trump. Now, when I first it dawned on me that Eric Erickson was the protagonist in this situation, <laughs> my first thought was, this really shows you uh, that. This moment is not durable. <laughs> this is untenable. This is fleeting. But that's been true of everything that's, that's what, gone Trump's way. And now I now I question. I you know I thought we'd be watching the Trump flame out by this time, and we're not. So I'm not sure how long it's going on. I do believe it will happen, and that he will not be the nominee. But it's it's become less certain how the eventual and certain demise of the Trump campaign will come about. Well, I have a theory on that. Me and my friend, she asked me um, why Trump was leading in the polls. And I told her that it's the Kanye effect. It's like he's saying things that I, I think we can fairly say that a lot of Republican supporters want to say, but they're too scared to say it or, you know, they have jobs or they're billionaires too or something like that. And so he gets up here and he says all of this outrageous stuff that some people are actually thinking. Yeah. And then they're just like, I like this guy. Vote, 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 vote. I think you're right. And, yeah. uh, and your friend and you are right. And uh, <laughs> Although the, Kanye West and Donald Trump, hearing them in the same sentence is kind of making my head just spin a little I'm bit. I'm feeling, yeah. yeah like, I'm getting <laughs> nauseous. <laughs> uh, Kanye is great, by the way. Things I are, just want it's, to say that. it's just the, the confusion. <laughs> Uh, you've got to admit, Kanye is a, a big jerk. His persona uh, of, uh, yeah, of yelling at people. But he's not racist. No, no and, and, so, not and, racist. and a lot of times when he's being a jerk, he has a point and he's right. Exactly. Like, like he, <laughs> so it's 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 like it's like his tone and and the, the like confronting people on stage at the Grammys or whatever is is like not a very nice thing to do. But top you know, ten moments in the past. Like now, but now here's yeah. a reason that Trump has an opening for to be successful in this way. It is. The political consultant class that makes itself rich off every campaign uh, by telling these candidates, you hire us and we're going to do everything we can to make sure you have exactly the message that will resonate with exactly the right demographic and donors. And they all get on stage with these meticulously crafted game plans to win the debate. And it's totally tedious and awful. And there's one blowhard who destroys them all just by saying these jackass things that people themselves want to say. So I think the the, the weakness and the the uh, finger in the air uh, mm -hmm. sensibility of the other candidates really makes it easy for Trump to just burn everything right. down. I mean, how many how many different Iraq war positions have we had from Jeb Bush so far this campaign? Nobody believes any of the things that he says about the Iraq war, right? It's just no one no one takes him seriously. And the Republican base is not like the donor class, right? The donor class is obsessed with the Iraq war because a lot of them have, have been like serious neoconservatives ideologically for a long time. The Republican base just watches Fox News and is mad at Obama for making us look weak. Uh, they don't they don't really have a, a, a huge like a whole lot emotionally invested in and, you know, whether 2003 was the breaking point for ISIS or 2014, uh, the breakout point. And, for, for and speaking of ISIS, Donald Trump just says, oh, we're going to take the oil and kick their butt. Yeah. <laughs> and, then, and then China. Sounds good to me. <laughs> and, 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 yeah, right. You just blow past the nuance of, well, my brother launched the Iraq war and it was terrible, but there was a surge and we could have We're going to beat him. We're going to beat him. Yeah. <laughs> and then China devalues its currency, which is complicated. That, that happened this week. Yeah, right. uh, and that that is a particularly interesting point because uh, while Trump's trade platform uh, has been pitched in, I think, the most racist way he could possibly do it uh, in a way that makes it sort of seem in line with his very racist immigration policy, uh, he has a point about how the United States has conducted its trade deals over the last two or three decades. We're not beating them. We're not beating them. We're not beating them. And and manufacturing Make jobs in the United States great again. have gone to other places. And one of the ways that the United States has been losing is by having the dollar be overvalued, be too strong relative to other currencies. 
And so China basically is this week devalued their currency uh, multiple times because their stock market has been plunging and they can't figure they tried all these other interventions that didn't work. Right. And China has been trying not to devalue their currency for the last couple of years. They, they don't want to look like they have to depend on devaluing their currency in order to function as, as an economy. Uh, but but even if they hit the growth rate, they want to hit of 7 percent this year, which is a very high growth rate. Mm-hmm. Uh it will be their slowest growth in a long period of time. And China has so many people in poverty that if they don't grow at a very, very high rate, the potential for political unrest in China is very, very high. So what does Trump do? So Trump doesn't have to do anything. He can just say, look, China, they're devaluing their currency. They're killing us. I'm not going to let that happen. (laughs) And Barack Obama's trade agenda, which is totally dependent on making allies with all these other countries who peg their currencies to the Chinese currency, that's totally fucked. If it's completely fucked if China significantly devalues its currency, the whole legacy that Obama wants to have with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, that Mm -hmm. is gone. Um, So Obama's fucked. And Trump can say, look, Obama sucks. He's negotiating these crappy trade deals that are sending our jobs to China. And he'll kind of be right. (laughs) Donald Trump (laughs) is even better at having an exclamation point in his campaign slogan. Jeb, it just says, Jeb, with a little exclamation point. And Donald Trump is, make America great again. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Beat him. Even if it was just his last name with an exclamation point, I mean, it's just like, Trump! Trump! (laughs) (laughs) White men can Trump. (laughs) Wow. That was a good one. (sighs) Okay, well, speaking of uh, of race, uh, didn't, didn't Trump say some other stuff this week, Julia? Yeah. Um. <laughs> All right, let's set this up. Donald Trump, uh, he'll he'll beat the Chinese. The Mexicans are rapists. And if Black Lives Matter protesters came up to my podium like they did the Bernie Sanders, I'll punch them. Right? Essentially. Or- he was just like, I will fight them. And I'm just like, <laughs> what? <laughs> like, what do you mean you'll fight them? <laughs> well, but so Bernie Sanders has had a couple speeches actually shut down. By uh, Black Lives Matter. Just, just one speech, yeah. Uh, which, or, and he was heckled. Oh, no, um, yeah, like, like we were saying in the, in the in the prior segment, he was he was heckled uh, to the point where the, his his speech was shut down. Um, and and Donald Trump is saying, "Hey, if that was me, I wouldn't let these you know angry black people have a microphone and talk. I would punch them." And it's perfect for him. <laughs> There's no constituency he can't offend and then win. Apparently. So that's the thing. From well, what do you think? He's not going to get the black vote. <laughs> I, think, I think it's safe to say that. He said um, the blacks love me. What? Yeah. Well, of course he said that. He's, he's delusional. Let's start, let's start making predictions on this because most people have said that he shouldn't have been in it this, this far. Julie, do you, what, what's your, uh, your prediction on, on when he drops out, if at all? I don't think he's going to get the nomination, but I wouldn't be super shocked if he did. <laughs> I, I I I can't imagine him dropping out before before some actual primaries. Exactly. I think, I think some states are gonna have to be won and lost before there's a big enough yeah. change in the dynamic. He's clearly the, he's easily the most charismatic candidate, as mm-hmm. Arthur pointed out in the field. I mean, this is, I think people it's dawning on people. This is like he's actually running. This is because he be doesn't he doesn't have yeah. consultants. Uh, massaging his every syllable. And yet, he is going to be in this for a long time, which is great for uh, the Huffington Post making money off of Donald Trump. So thanks for joining us, guys. The Huffington Post entertainment section. That is... No politics. (laughs) (laughs) So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Adriana Yucero with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta. I'm Zach Carter, and this week we were joined by Huffington Post reporters Arthur Delaney, Julia Craven, and Ryan Riley. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Check us out in the iTunes store for the Huffington Post's whole family of podcasts. Subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, send an email to so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. As always, thanks for listening. We miss you already. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.